If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I see history as the most subversive of all the sciences, right? Because history shows that things can be different, that there's nothing inevitable about the way things are right now, that that we can radically restructure our society, our economy, you name it. That was Rutger Bregman on The Power of History. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we'll be speaking to one of the historians of the moment, Rutger Bregman. Rutger firstly made headlines in January for his appearance at the Davos World Economic Forum, where he criticised rich attendees for tax avoidance. Following that, a heated interview he did with Tucker Carlson of Fox News went viral after it was leaked online despite not having been broadcast. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Rutger a few days ago to discuss some of his ideas that have recently caused a global sensation. 
Talk me through how you went from writing your book, which came out a couple of years ago, to appearing at this big conference, which got so much media attention, I guess. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I'm sometimes wondering that myself. <laughs> um, so what happened is that, um, I mean, I was, I've, I've been trained as a historian. Now, I'm not an academic. I decided uh, you know, not to do a PhD, but work for a journalism platform called The Correspondent instead, which is a bit in between journalism and academia. So um, I get total freedom to write whatever I want, but um, I don't, you know, I'm not going through the process of peer review and don't need to worry about whether I get tenure track or blah, 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 uh, all that all that stuff. And, and I'm being allowed to ask, you know, bigger questions. I don't have to specialize into very, very interesting, but, you know, also very small subjects. Um, and uh, and as long as it is a little bit relevant for today, then I can do whatever I want. So I see history as the most subversive of all the sciences, right? Because history shows us that things can be different, that there's nothing inevitable about the way things are right now, that, that we can radically restructure our society, our economy, you name it. Um, so I wrote a book. Uh, Utopia for Realists, which is about all sorts of crazy ideas that may seem bizarre right now, but may become reality in the future. Just as we have a lot of, you know, ideas and milestones of civilization right now that are, you know, very normal right now, but were completely bizarre just a couple of decades or maybe centuries ago. You know, think about slavery or the abolition of slavery or or um, uh, democracy or equal rights for men and women. That the first people who were arguing for these kind of things were dismissed as radicals and idiots and, you know, bizarre people with very unrealistic ideas. But now we take them for granted. So um, I wrote a book about a couple of those ideas. I've, and, and I guess the most famous one right now is Universal Basic Income. Five, six years ago, it was completely forgotten. Uh, I wrote a book about it, about the history of it all, about the experiments that happened in the 60s and the 70s that show that this can actually work. I, in, the, in my book, I, I, I write about this bizarre history of, of Richard Nixon, who almost managed to implement a, a small basic income. It's a completely forgotten episode in history, uh, in American history. And uh, again, um, the effect of that is that people start realizing that, hey, maybe we can actually do this because it almost happened in the past and we successfully experimented within the past. So maybe this could actually work. Uh, and that way, I think that history could be way more convincing than, you know, thousands of pages of economic models. Uh, you know, it just shows you that what would really happen in practice. Um, so I wrote a book about that. Universal Basic Income became a very popular subject. Uh, lots of people in Silicon Valley became interested, people in the tech community, CEOs around the globe. And then I got an invitation to talk about the idea in Davos. Um, the World Economic Forum. Uh, it's organized there every every year. Um, now, this is the place where the richest people, the elites, come together. Uh, they fly there in their private yachts, and then they talk about gender equality and participation and climate change. And, you know, the, the first impression you get is that you're at some kind of progressive conference, you, you know, maybe <laughs> like the youth, uh, the youth of the Labour Party, something like that. Uh, that's that's what it feels like. But then after a while, you start noticing that there are certain subjects that aren't really being talked about. And and I think that the 
the most uh, important one here is taxes. People don't talk about taxes in Davos. Um, it's uh, it's really the uh, the forb- forbidden word, the T word. Um, and and again, here my my perspective as a historian, you know, I've been uh, I've actually been one of the few people who read the whole uh, Thomas Piketty book <laughs> a couple of years ago. I mean, lots of people bought it, but I doubt many people read it. <laughs> uh, but again, the historical perspective is fascinating here. There's now a debate going on uh, about top marginal tax rates, whether they should go up. Uh, lots of people would say that 70 percent uh, top marginal tax rate for the very rich. Uh, would be crazy, would, would destroy our economies. But then the historian can point out, well, we actually did this in the 50s and the 60s under the Republican President Eisenhower, the US had a top marginal tax rate of 90%. And and same is true if you um, if you look at the history of inequality. You know, you see so many ideas and policies in history that, that actually worked and that we've forgotten about. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I just pointed that, that out at the conference. I, uh, I said, I feel like I'm at a, at a firefighter fighters con- conference and no one's allowed to talk about water. So maybe <laughs> we should start doing that. Uh, to me, it, it all felt very obvious, but I guess, uh, I guess that's what made it a powerful thing because people don't really say the, the obvious things at conferences like these. Um, so that went viral. And uh, then I got invitations for a lot of different media from around the globe. You know, I've been listening to myself for weeks and weeks. It's getting really boring, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, an extra- it's an extraordinary month in anyone's life. What's it felt like as a historian to be at the centre of this massive media storm, if you like? Well, I have mixed feelings about it because um, I guess this is what a lot of authors experience is that the more success you have with your ideas, you know, the less you learn <laughs> because you keep talking about the same things. Uh, but then the good thing about all of this is that, you know, I believe that history really has a role to play in the, in the public domain and also has, has a political role to play. As I mentioned, it, it's, it's one of the most subversive sciences, you know, it really makes you doubt a lot of things. Uh, and I think that, I mean, historians should speak truth to power. There's this book, it's called The History Manifesto, I believe. It was published a couple of years ago by, I think, two American professors, in which they make the same point, is that, yes, there's definitely a role for historians. I mean, a huge role. It's, it's, it's the main part of the job, you know, being in the archives and, and, and for years and years doing that research into this or that, you know, very small specialist thing. But we also have a lot to say about what's going on right now. You know, we've got a lot of lessons to teach and we should go out there. Um, So I was very frustrated. Uh, Now, I think seven, eight years ago when I was almost finishing university and, you know, the financial crash had just happened. The Arab Spring was going on and I put it on TV and I only saw economists. Economists explain the world to to the audience. And I was like, where are the historians? We know this, right? We've studied revolutions. We've studied financial crashes. There's so much that we can teach, but you know, I, they're, 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 they're just, I think way too few historians going out there. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been trying to do for the past couple of years. And uh, yeah, uh, people are very interested in that. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, I read an article by Max Boot, the historian in the Washington Post, in which he said that not enough people in America, he was talking about specifically, but not enough people know about history, and it's really dangerous for today's political climate. Would you agree that we need just more historians uh, doing public history, if you like? Absolutely, absolutely. So during my book tour in the, uh, the US, quite a few journalists asked me, why is this Dutch guy explaining to us or teaching us about this history of Richard Nixon almost implementing a basic income? Why is he explaining to us that at the end of the 60s, almost all experts believe that some kind of guaranteed basic income was going to be implemented in the US. Why don't we know this? Why do we need a Dutch guy to explain that to us, right? It's pretty bizarre. Um, so, yeah, I think that just just having a better grasp of history uh, opens your mind, you know? It opens your, your, your worldview and uh, it makes you see that there are so many different, so many more possibilities out there. Um, and I've mainly been focusing on economic ideas, obviously, like basic income, like higher taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that could work in, in many other domains as well. Hmm. I mean, how, how do you think historians are treated by media and by politicians at the moment? Do you think that relationship is healthy, how it works? Well, you know, I'm more interested in in the role that historians want to play themselves, right? Mm. Uh, you can always point at the media and say, oh, you know, they're too sensationalist. They're not interested in a blah, blah, blah. But I think it's better to think about what you can do yourself, you know, to be more effective in, in conveying your message or in telling a story that people actually want to hear, right? Because, you know, this, this I, I must say this was also the case seven years ago when I was just trying to decide whether I wanted to do a PhD. I just looked up all the PhD that had recently been published at my university, you know, by fellow historians. And to be honest, I, I thought it was really, really boring. <laughs> you know, but, uh, to me, it seemed as if, as if the world was burning out there, financial crash, Arab Spring, as I said. I mean, there was so much to say. And then I was reading these PhD theses about, I don't know, um, farmers in the 13th century, like, 1249 to 1252, somewhere in the north of the Netherlands, not 1253, because that's a very different story, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it felt like very irrelevant for me. Uh, I, for a while, I, I, I taught history at university, and sometimes a student would come up to me and would say, I want to write about this or that. And then I would ask the question, well, why do you want to do that? And so often I would get the reply or the answer is that the, the student said, well, it has never been done before. And I always thought, well, that is the worst possible answer. If no one's done it before, it must be utterly boring, <laughs> right? It's probably not interesting. So 
that's not <laughs> that's not a, not a good answer. So sometimes I think historians are like that. They're doing something that no one has done before. But there's probably a good reason why no one has done that before. It's boring, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so is it then about finding new channels and new ways of telling stories that have already been told so that you're not relying on the media, that you're not just trying to, f- to find new things to research for the sake of doing it, I guess? Yeah, and it's it's also, you know, um, thinking about what your perspective can add. I mean, uh, when we talk about in, the, the growth of inequality, taxation, uh, I mean, there have been some wonderful books. Uh, recently, I, I mentioned the Thomas Piketty book. Um, what's his book? Walter Schneider, Schneidel, I think mm. Schneider. You know the the Great Leveler. This this book in which he explains, you know, the the major role that wars have always played in reducing inequality. I mean, that is fascinating. It's also quite depressing if you if you think about it. Is that throughout history, you know, wars have been the way to massively reduce inequality, and in, in peacetime, it's incredibly hard. So now we face this this challenge of of climate change, and we almost need to move into some kind of war economy to 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 make the appropriate changes, right? We need to completely reinvent our economic model. So we got to look at history. Has this happened before? How did we do it? What kind of narratives did, did we need back then? What kind of policies? What did our governments look like? I mean, there's so much to learn again here. Um, yeah, it's also I mean, think about the history of innovation. That's that's again. I think that a lot of interesting work here is actually not being done by historians themselves, but by economists who've been, you know, retraining themselves as as historians or like um, economic historians. Maybe um, there's this uh, Italian economist. Uh, her name is Mariana Mazzucato. The point points out that in the history of innovation, the state has always played a huge role. Uh, she gives the ex- example of the iPhone. You know, every sliver of, you know, breakthrough technology, fundamental technology in the iPhone, uh, think about the touchscreen or think about uh, the battery or the Internet or mobile technology. You know, everything that makes it a smartphone instead of a stupid phone, it was all invented by researchers on the government payroll. And in her book, uh, which is called The Entrepreneurial State, she goes through history and she shows that basically since the 19th century, this was always the case for breakthrough technologies, is that the state played a huge role. So again, if we want more innovation in the future, you know, we need to think about what the role of the state is going to be. Uh, and again, historians can play a big role here and just by pointing out you know, what the past looks like. Mm. Something I find exciting about your book's argument is the idea that historians, as well as kind of uh, telling us about what now looks like, can help us understand what the future might look like and that we've kind of lost sight of that a bit. So I, I suppose in a way this is part of that effort to make us rethink what the future might mean for us, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not a trend watcher. I'm not a futurologist. I think that is all nonsense, right? These people who make a lot of money and give keynotes and go, to conferences around the globe, places like Davos, to tell, well, the future is going to be like this, or the future is going to be like that, and blockchain is going to be a great thing, and 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 blah 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 blah. You know, uh, is if there's one thing you learn from history is that people are really bad at predicting the future, right? The only thing that I want to do is sketch different scenarios and open people's minds to different possibilities and to show that nothing is inevitable here. So. Yeah, history really makes you a possibilist. Uh, 
That's why historians always hated this whole whole idea of the end of history. You know, Francis Guyama's famous book uh, that we had somehow arrived at the end of history and the last man, blah, 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 and that we all be, would become liberal Democrats. And, um, you know, for years and years, it, they've been saying, well, that is that is utterly wrong. You have no idea. <laughs> Go back to university. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. that's uh, they, they turn out to be right, the historians in this case. Do you think there are any dangers with historians becoming involved in politics? Say, for instance, there was a historian that started putting forward kind of views that you found challenging politically. Do you think there is any argument for historians not becoming quite so politicised, possibly? Well, I mean, in my perfect world, there would be a lot of historians and they <laughs> they, they would play different roles. So there is, there is definitely space for historians who are not interested in, in having any political or public role uh, I would just say there's there's quite some room for more historians in the in the public domain uh, we need them we have way too many economists out there <laughs> and they're they're yeah they're talking a lot of nonsense in my mind <laughs> so uh, yeah we, we could use a lot of historians there and I mean uh, t- take a historian like Niall Ferguson uh, um, a historian that many people love to hate um, I mean I disagree with a lot of his work, but for example, his book on the, on the the First World War, what's it called, the Pity of War, or something like that. I disagree with almost almost everything in that, but it really made me think. So that's good. Um, so yeah, I think uh, sometimes it's always good to uh, yeah to get out of the ivory tower and 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 sort of get rid of this this whole pretense of being objective and and know it all, but just let people ask the right questions so that we can have a proper debate. Mm. Finally, then, I mean, part of the reason this story is so extraordinary is because the amount of attention that your speech at a forum got and the way that it put history right into the headlines. Are there any other things that historians could do or other people could do to help people understand history in, in new ways? Are there other mediums that you could use, for instance, to get this message across? I still believe in books. Uh, there's this wonderful book that basically everyone's read by now, uh, by Yuval Noah Harari, you know, the Israeli historian called Sapiens. Again, I disagree with a lot in that book, but it, it, it is so wonderfully written and it really makes you ask the big questions, right? Um, so what I would recommend for jealous academic professional historians who are like, oh, Harari is not the real thing. He's just, you know getting all this attention, but he's not a proper academic or whatever. I would just recommend read that book and ask the question, what makes this so effective? Why do people find this so interesting? Because maybe maybe that's also um, a simple lesson that that you got to learn as a historian is how to actually write, right? We are storytellers. That's what we are. And stories have this extraordinary power to, you know, to change people's perceptions. Uh, I've, I've experienced this so many times. Let me give you one last anecdote. Uh, in my book, I, I tell the story of uh, an experiment that happened in London with 13 homeless men who received £3,000 cash, you know, free money. They were completely free to decide for themselves what they wanted, uh, you know, to spend the money on. And um, it's, you know, it's an interesting story. A year after the experiment, seven out of 30 men had a roof above their head. Two more had applied for housing. So it was very successful. Now, when my book was published, I thought that this was the weakest part of my book. 
let's be honest about it. It's a very small experiment. 13 men, and and it wasn't peer review. It's not a scientific study or anything, but I just thought it was a good story. But then what happened is that people really remembered this story. They forgot all the statistics. They forgot all the abstract arguments, the scientific study, but they remembered this one little story. Actually, it has now happened to me five times that I was at some some pe- people's uh, some person's birthday party, you know. And what you what do you do? Well, you go, I don't know. You go to the kitchen and you talk to some people you don't know. It's always what I like to do. And uh, people ask me the question, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a writer. So what do you write? I say, well, you know, I write about history, economics. Oh, yeah, have you written a book? Yeah, it's called Utopia for Realists. Oh, never heard about that. Uh, so what's the book about? Oh, it's you know, it's about several ideas. Uh, well, basic income is one of the ideas. And here the person, this happened to me five times, here, here, here the person says, oh, basic income. So that is interesting. You know what? You should look up. They've done an experiment in London a couple of years ago with 13 homeless men. It's really interesting. You should look that up. So isn't that fascinating? People forget everything. They forget my name. They forget, you know, the, the name of my book. They actually forget forget that they read this article <laughs> in which I, you know, taught them the story yes. and they even managed to tell me this story on a birthday party where they actually speaking to the author himself <laughs> <laughs> i think that is hilarious and it just shows you how incredibly powerful stories can be in changing people's minds and perceptions that was rutger bregman rutger's latest book utopia for realists and how we can get there was published in 2017 by bloomsbury And you can read a version of this interview in issue 15 of BBC World Histories, which goes on sale at the end of the month. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 